Hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to our third episode of You Forgot One. Today, we are so excited. Micaiah and I are talking about the replacements. Do the replacements have an all-time great album? Micaiah says yes. I say yes. The question is, is that album Let It Be or is that album Please to Meet Me? We're going to be joined today by Replacements uh, biographer and historian Bob Mayer, who has just been nominated for a Grammy for his work putting together the liner notes on Dead Man's Pop. He also did all of the writing that accompanies the re-release, the repackaging of Please to Meet Me that came out last year. And so we're so excited to talk to him today. Micaiah, before we talk to Bob, give us your argument for Let It Be. Uh, for me, it's simple, right? I, I, I love a good album cover, so when I see Let It Be, you know, that, that is a cover that excites me. That's something like, I want to hear what's behind this. And so when I go to give it a spin, I take it out the sleeve, you know, it, it, is exa- it doesn't disappoint, right? It starts off with I Will Dare, which is this big... Uh, this punk rock looking forward to like the what's going to be indie rock but it's got like a mandolin and like a, kind of a different kind of guitar so that we're different from hearing from the replacements and other punk rock bands at the time you get these this piano ballad androgynous which is probably you know more relevant now than even then uh which i guess just means it's timeless uh you get their a really big replacements hit from from uh, the song unsatisfied and other great ones like 16 Blue and Answering Machine. I mean, for me, this is, this is what's cool about the 80s is Let It Be, right? This, this is a great 80s album. It's a great punk rock album. And so for me, it's also the best replacements album. For me, it's interesting that you start off by saying, what's your favorite album of music? And the first thing you said was, I like a picture. And yeah. it'd be easy for me to fault you for that, but here's the truth for me. But part I love of the, the reason. But when we're talking about the art of the LP, you know, it's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the whole thing. And so part of the reason for me that Please to Meet Me is my favorite is it seems like the quintessential 80s album. And, and here's what I mean by that. For me, when I think 80s, I think John Hughes movies. And there is not a single song on Please to Meet Me that I can't perfectly imagine the exact space in the John Hughes movie where that song should go. And then, of course, culminating in this beautiful picture, Can't Hardly Wait, be, in my opinion, the very best replacement song, the song by the replacement that should have been their huge pop hit. But of course, by that point, they were already kind of pigeonholed into being an, an alternative rock, college rock, indie rock. You know, before we had all of these uh, labels that were so popular in the 90s and the 2000s, you know, in the 80s, being pigeonholed as one of these bands didn't help you. And that's where the replacements got stuck. But I believe, I believe that if Please to Meet Me had come out 10 years later, that it would rightly be considered one of the greatest albums of all time. And so for me, because my exposure to that album came in 1998, I see it as the album that it was and that it could have been. And again, that album 
if that if that same album without any changes had come out 10 years later please to meet me as a top five album of of that year maybe a top 10 album of that decade uh, and so for me i just love please to meet me starting off with iou alex chilton I mean, these incredible, incredible songs. I don't believe that you end up with the emo movement, which I was a huge fan of in the early 2000s. You don't end up with the emo movement without songs like Nevermind and Valentine on Please to Meet Me, on The Ledge. I mean, come on. I mean, an emo song that came 13 years too early. And that's that's really what you have. And so for me... I'm a guy who loves Please to Meet Me. I think it's a great album. I think it's one of the great albums of all time. So let's go ahead and jump into our conversation with with replacements historian and biographer Bob Mayer and hear what he has to say. Um, as we introduce you, we, we know that you just got nominated for a Grammy. So congratulations. That's exciting yeah, stuff. Congrats. Yeah. Thank well you. Deserved. Well, I'm supposed to know the results by, uh, well, soon, but they postponed it. So I won't know for another <laughs> couple months, but it's, it's just an honor to be nominated. I'm not counting on winning, but yeah, we'll see. This is your first time? First time nominated. I, I, was, I did the liner notes for a box set that did get uh, nominated and actually won, and I was kind of supposed to have been nominated as part of the package it was like a series of essays and they i think they were hedging their bets because i had the same record company had another set of liner notes so they entered us separately instead of together and it was it was a big star thing and it was right after alex chilton died so they had kind of the sentimentality in our favor so my buddy robert got one and i was like oh no but uh so yeah it's nice to 10 years later to get get a chance to actually get one proper. <laughs> Which box was that? Was that like the big star box? Me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Robert Gordon got nominated and won the Grammy for same category, best album notes or whatever. Oh. Uh, but I had kind of the companion essay, but that same year I also had a essay of Chris Bell and I, th- they entered it. I, well, I guess they, he, Alex had passed, but um, anyway, it was one of those things where it was like, I thought we were being entered together for that one and said so they entered us separately so it's like oh shoot so, anyway <laughs> tell us a little bit obviously we've seen your writing um as as kind of a rock biographer rock historian mm-hmm. um tell us a little bit how you got into that what, what was what was your way in were you did you start out as a musician did you start out just as a lover of music yeah i didn't really have uh, you know much ambition in terms of being a rock writer or anything i guess i'd always had a bit of a background in writing. I was in journalism in high school and my you know, course of study in college was communications, although that was more sort of human communications and mass communications. Uh, but I was just a big fan of music. And in that time when I was going to college, uh, you know, got deeper and deeper into music and had always been into music, but never, you know, thought, well, this is going to be something I'm going to do. Um, when I got out of school and I started working, you know, briefly worked in a trade publication for a few months and then ended up working for a radio network, national radio network, doing entertainment stuff. And I wrote, uh, uh, my goal was, this was in, in Phoenix at the time, Tempe area. And um, the guy who had been the sort of mastermind uh, songwriter, guitarist behind the Gin Blossoms, uh, Doug Hoppins, who I, who I knew a little bit growing up, um, 
and I'd met him, you know, and hung out with him and a little bit uh, before he unfortunately killed himself. Mm. Uh, he had died and nobody had ever really done a story on him because obviously the circumstances of his death were pretty, you know, rough and, and people were always kind of scared, I think, to kind of pursue it because it was just a sort of very painful thing for all the people who were close to him and his bandmates and all that kind of stuff. So I really just wanted to know personally about like him and all, uh, he had a lot of unreleased music and his kind of history musically. And so on the fifth anniversary of his death, this would have been in the end of 1998. Um, I did a story, which was as a freelancer uh, that was published by the local alternative weekly, the new times, which then was, you know, part of the big and thriving alternative weekly chains, which those things don't really exist anymore. But um, so my kind of entry into music journalism was I just wanted to do this story and I knew some of his friends and I knew some people. So I thought, well, maybe these people will talk to me and I can get this story that I want to read uh, published. And I did. And it just so happened that, you know, it kind of was a bit of a sensation and the, the music editor who, uh, guy named Gilbert Garcia, who was the music editor at New Times, he, you know, kind of put me in his, on the back of that, put me in his pool of freelancers. And within a few months, the guy who was the head of all the music editors who had been in Phoenix, he read the story. And so essentially I got hired uh, to be the music editor. So I sort of went from having no real ambition to being a, a music writer, although obviously, you know, in my heart of hearts, it's something I wanted to do and wanted to be involved in, but I just didn't really know a way in and thought, well, you know, I don't know. I, I I had a sort of the things I should have done and studied, which ended up being criticism and 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 writing, are the things I I thought. Well, this is this comes to me a little too easily. Maybe college is supposed to be harder. Maybe the workforce is supposed to be more difficult. <laughs> so I should have been doing this the whole time, pretty obviously. Um, and so anyway, yeah. So I kind of I don't want to say I fell into it. I mean, there was a part of me obviously that wanted to do that, but I didn't. You know, I'd written a few little things for free or for little magazines before I wrote that story, but that was really the first big story I did. And it kind of with, in very short order led to me becoming a music editor at the New Times. And I worked for the Village Voice Chain and then Chicago Reader. And then eventually uh, about 15 years ago, I took a job at the Daily Paper, which is now Gannett owned newspaper in Memphis, uh, which is a great music city. And I've been the music editor there. And then in that process, I, you know, in being a guy who's working in the music business, I've come to know people and and among them, some people that were in the replacements camp. And so that led me to doing, wanting to do a book, which ended up becoming Trouble Boys, uh, my biography, The Replacements. And then, you know, I'll, on the back of that, I've done liner notes and, and other projects and produced projects now. So, so yeah, I, I know my career wasn't accidental, but I didn't, you know, go in with some plan of, of being a music writer. I just wanted to write this one story and it sort of yielded a career. Wow. So it, it sounds like you ended up in Memphis and, and obviously M Memphis great place to connect with the the big star guys great place to connect with you know some some of the guys in the replacements what was your way into the replacements did did you grow up as a fan was that um, something that came later well sort of again another sort of funny accident uh, that obviously comprises a big chapter in my book and a big part of the replacements history is i just saw them blind dumb luck uh the night they played saturday night live in January of 86, I was 11 or whatever. And I didn't, I think I was more interested in watching Saturday Night Live because Anthony Michael Hall was, was on that mm -hmm. season. And I was a fan of weird science, I think, or whatever. But, um, so I just happened to see them, you know, they, they performed on, and it was such a, it was so unlike anything that I had seen to that point in terms of 
music acts on TV. You have to remember it's kind of the big 80s. It's the video era. Everything's lip synced or polished. You know, the music that was on TV was like, you know, people lip syncing on Solid Gold or <laughs> uh, American Bandstand or whatever. There wasn't a whole lot of real visceral rock and roll. And, and to see the replacements, just, you know, if anybody you've seen that performance, um, it's still, you know, very raw and very loose and very loud and very unkempt. And it was just, you know, sort of caught my 11 or 12 year old sort of uh, imagination, captured my imagination. And then it wasn't probably another year or two. Um, we, I grew up in LA mostly, and then we moved to Arizona. It was kind of in that transition when we moved to Arizona and I was at the end of junior high, starting high school that I discovered actually pleased to meet me, which had probably been out already a year or so then, but had kind of built up a little bit of a thing. And so I was aware enough by that point, you know, the the kind of early teen years, you start getting into music that uh, that I actually, that was the first real record I listened to and then kind of worked my way back through high school mm. and that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, so my first exposure was really just kind of this accident of seeing them on Saturday Night Live. But, you know, even though I didn't immediately run out and go get the records, it sort of impressed me and sort of stayed with me. And then uh, I think probably a year or not, not quite two years later, I, uh, I, I got into Please to Meet Me. And then, you know, as I mentioned over time, came to through just through being in the business and being a music journalist, came to know some of the people who were involved in their career. Peter Jesperson, who was the guy who kind of discovered them, signed them to Twin Tone, managed them. Uh, and then I interviewed Paul and Tommy and in various things for their solo projects or band projects in that time. So, and, and, and came to know some of the people on the business side who were involved with them. And so eventually when it came time, you know, whatever this is, I started the book, I guess, 25, 27 years. No, is that right? Let's see. 86 to, yeah, it's like 20 plus years, 25 years later when I started yeah. writing the book from the first time I saw them. Uh, and now it's been 30 some years. But um, so, yeah, it was a kind of long road to get to the book. But the replacements had always, you know, had been with me pretty much since my preteen or early teen years. Hmm. I pleased to meet me. Did you become one of the kind of trademark replacements obsessives? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it took a little while longer because, you know, this that was still kind of pre-internet and stuff. So, I mean, yes, I started listening to the records and got my hands on stuff. I did actually see them twice uh, at the end of their career. I saw them open for Petty in Phoenix on that tour. Uh, and then I saw them on the last tour. They played a they played a kind of a weird little theater that was more of a musical theater in the round called the Celebrity Theater they, with, a, with a revolving stage. I don't think it was revolving that night. but uh, So I caught him twice with the slim version of the group. And uh, um, and and so, I, you know, I, I, I saw them, but, you know, I was in high school or whatever, so it, was quite, it wasn't quite, you know, I, I didn't have quite the access or the ability to see stuff that same way. So like my, you know, I was just out in the, in the, in the uh, amphitheater or what do you call it? Field or grass there. And it was mostly kind of seeing them on the big screen. Although the celebrity show, I saw them a little bit, you know, it was a little closer. So it was, I was still early in my concert going year. So I didn't really have much to sort of compare it to. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so I managed to see them a couple of times. And, and then when, as, as things grew on into the nineties and I was in college, sort of middle college, then you could kind of get your hands through the internet on bootlegs and tape trading and things like that. So then I got more into getting tapes or, or there was the replacements Bible or things like that that would have, you know, collections of articles and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, the typical fan process, but, you know, I kind of got into them before it was quite so accessible that you could, you know, sort of <laughs> turn on your computer and have all the recordings and all the bootlegs are on YouTube and, and everything. So it was a little bit slower process for me, but yeah, eventually I, I went full, uh, full obsessive. 
what what uh, gets their fans to be so obsessive? What what sets the Mats apart from other bands from the era? What they're not like X. They're not like Violent Femmes. Uh, they're not like uh, their so-called rivals REM. Right. And their fan base isn't quite the same. So what sets them apart um, from these you other know, that, that's I mean, that's a lot of that is is, is kind of something that sort of underpins the book, you know, in, in, in talking about what their appeal was and what their attraction was at the time and why it's continued on and why I think now it, it's grown even to successive generations of people who never saw them or weren't even born, probably even when they broke up the first time uh, are still into them. I mean... I think it's a few factors. I mean, they are a band. I mean, first and foremost, it's the music. I mean, they made eight albums um, in their career, you know, four for Twin Tone, four for Warner Brothers. And I think every album, um, not only are they great albums, amazing albums, they're also different. And, and you see a progression of a band from Sorry Ma to All Shook Down that, I mean, I compare it and I, you know, only say it half uh, in jest is sort of like the Beatles, you know, they were together 10, 12 years and, and, and recorded X number of albums, but the, the, the growth, the evolution, the journey that you can take with a band in those eight albums with the replacements is pretty remarkable. Also in, because the music sort of evolves and, and goes down different roads, it's like, you can, you can tap into it at any point in your life. You can be a 19, 20 year old and hear Sorry Ma and immediately get that and the punk energy and the pop sensibility of that. But you can also be a 30, 40 year old person and listen to the more singer songwriter kind of ver version of the replacements that's on All Shook Down and appreciate that. And then you've got, you know, sort of the classic period of, uh, you know, Let It Be, Tim and 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 uh, Please to Meet Me, which are obviously kind of all time great records. Uh, and then, you know, you got Stink, which is more of a hardcore thing. And then you've got Don't Tell a Soul, which is maybe more of a kind of 80s, you know, big pop record in its own way. So I think there's just so much in the catalog uh, mm -hmm. and so many different kinds of records that people can, can tap into it. Um, at any point in their life and go back to it and find it in different ways and all that kind of stuff. And then of course there's the mystique, there's the romance of, you know, a band that didn't take themselves too seriously and yet made dead music that was deadly serious in its own way and, and, and exceedingly powerful. Um, the fact that they didn't become uh, a kind of weird one hit wonder, they didn't have that, you know, they sort of, the story of them is that, you know, they in a sense failed or they were just fell short of the brass ring. I think that that creates a kind of myth and a mystique for a band that it's like, oh, they were the band that could have made it, but they didn't, or, you know, they chose not to, or whatever it is, you know, there's, there's a million sort of different views and versions of the replacements that people have and, and hold. But I think they just, they are a band that comes kind of packaged with this um, mystique. And then, you know, there's the tragedy of Bob Stinson dying young and, and, and that is part of the story too. And so I just think there, you know, there's every, every angle is kind of covered. You've got great music. You've got a great story. You've got a, 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 a kind of cool factor and a timelessness to the band that doesn't, that, you know, is, is kind of there. So I think that's why they've managed to, you know, not only survive and thrive where some other bands, you know, might've had more commercial success at the time, but now aren't as cool or the records aren't considered as, as great in the Pantheon or whatever, uh, or some bands that were their contemporaries, you know, kind of had a fluke hit and that sort of colors people's perception of them. And, and so I think the replacements, they were kind of somehow remain, have remained pure and timeless. Uh, and that's a, a big part of the attraction and what makes people so, you know, protective and feel, they feel like it's their band, you know, there's something mm -hmm. about Paul, Paul's writing, um, you know, that was kind of inherent in Paul's writing and in their personalities. And I don't think, 
you know, I've said this before, but I think the replacements are one of the few bands where um, what you're seeing, what you're hearing really is who they are. There's no artifice that, you know, the replacements were never like, okay, we're going to put on, even though they wore a weird outfits sometimes, they're never going to put on an act. Uh, they were what they are and who they are, uh, are kind of the same thing. And I think people mm-hmm. on an instinctive level know that and appreciate that. And I think that's why people just have this kind of really deeply personal feeling for them. Because of your career and some of the ways that you've, you've been able to connect with people, you've been able over the years to connect with some of the people on the business side, on the A&R side of, mm-hmm. of the replacement story. And even, you know, as we're talking about it, you know, they did, they, they missed out on some of the, um, on that kind of short term momentary success that a lot of kind of one hit big eighties bands came and had, you know, like had one great album or one big hit and the replacement just never had that. And yet they are one of those bands that whether it's let it be Tim, please to meet me, they, they have these albums that remain even today, incredibly significant so they, they had this significance instead of success, but they, they, they have had a longevity that a lot of bands that they were contemporary to, um, I, I think, probably desired. And so for someone who has had some conversations with people who were on the business side of their career, what are, the, what are those conversations like? What, are, what is their input like? What is it like for a, a record label or A&R guys or business guys to back a band that, mm. you know, th- I mean, they never had a top 10 selling album mm. and, and yet they've had incredibly important albums that, you know, arguably they've sold far more albums since their breakup than they ever did while they were together. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's one of those things where the benefit of hindsight kind of tells you why they, didn't sort of succeed commercially in the moment. I mean, some of it is they were on the front end, they were on the vanguard of post-punk bands that were coming out of this American independent movement of indie labels, you know, local regional indie labels that got signed to, to the major labels. I mean, they were really kind of the first or one of the first. Um, and the apparatus for marketing and selling those bands and the apparatus as far as radio was not really in place uh, in 1985 or 87 or really even 89 to uh, kind of allow a band like The Replacements to be successful. Uh, you know, so, some of it, like I talk about in the book, it's like they had hits that were hits on alternative radio in 1987 or 1989, but alternative radio as a format in 1987 or 1989 was not a powerful enough entity. It was not a hit-making entity, whereas within a couple of years, alternative radio, and then certainly in the years after 91 when Nirvana hit, was a very big commercial force. Um, so, you know, there's, there's just weird kind of marketing forces and forces of history like that, that kind of kept them from, you know, just bad timing you know, Paul always has a thing and it's in the book. He says, you know, we were, we were 10 years uh, behind our, uh, behind the times and five years ahead, you know, and it's true. They would have almost fit in a certain way, uh, in seventies album rock bands or classic rock bands, uh, you know, or if they had, a, you know, been doing, you know, Tim, we're pleased to meet me and it had come out, let's say in 1992 or 93 or 94, when alternative radio and alternative bands were being embraced by the mainstream, they could have had a success, but they weren't in either of those time frames. Mm-hmm. They were kind of just existed in their own little, little world. And, and, you know, some of it has to do with their own willingness to play the game, be willing to work a certain way, work with certain producers, all that kind of stuff. I think that tends to get overblown. You know, everyone wants to blame it on they were wild, they were drunk, they were rebellious. All of that's true. And certainly those things did keep them from 
getting certain, you know, having certain things happen. But ultimately, I think just the world at large was not quite ready for um, what they had when they had it. But the good thing is, you know, as we look back is, you know, they weren't, it turns out they weren't a band of their moment commercially or in terms of, you know, wider acceptance, but they've become a band for all times. You know, if you go and look at what they were doing in terms of the reunion where they're playing to, you know, headlining festivals, doing their own headlining shows, playing 15,000 people in Minneapolis or 15,000 people in New York City, and you have an audience that's singing the songs and knows every word. Well, you know, that's, you know, there's different kinds of successes and and not everybody's success is the same or happens in the sort of time that it's supposed to. But I think there's, you know, they, they have ultimately succeeded. It just took, you know, 25, 30 years for that to happen. The, the question of why they didn't become more successful in their time or what it was that and what it was that made people obsessive about them. That's kind of why I wrote the book, you know, and, and it's what I explore, you know, in those pages. It's really those are the questions because, you know, normally you write a book about a band because they're successful and famous and have hit records and all that stuff. And can't say that about the replacements. So I was kind of trying to answer a different set of questions, you know, which are the kind of things you've discussed and brought up. So For me, the replacements are kind of the punk rock answer to Big Star. Uh, that 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 precious band that didn't quite make it but you know like september girls you can't say it's not a hit you know 13 you can't say it's not a hit sure right and and they're beloved right the three for three right great records so are they looking at alex are they looking at big star and they're like well you know they didn't make it that far you know i think that was you know uh, big star was a band that for them again that was something you know those because Big Star is certainly at that time, you know, when the replacements were around 80s in the early 80s, Big Star was still very obscure. And Peter Jesperson was a guy who kind of knew Big Star. He had worked at a record store, probably the only record store that sold a lot of Big Star records in Minneapolis mm-hmm. uh, in the 70s. And so that was a band that not only the replacements was one of the few things that all of them agreed on and liked, but I do think it was a, a, an example, not so much of... Uh, what to do, what not to do, or even musically so much. I think it was just like, it must have been on some level kind of mind-blowing to them to hear a band and hear those those three big star records and be like, wow, people can make records this good and nobody has ever heard of them, you know? Um, so I think it was always a little bit of a, for Paul, a little bit of a warning, you know, that, they're, they're, that the talent, great records, good songs, they don't guarantee success. Um, so I think in that way, certainly was something that, you know, they were aware of. And then, you know, later on, of course, they came to know Alex and Alex produced some demos for them. And then they went down to Arden and made pleased to meet me in part because of the connection with Alex and Big Star. So, I mean, certainly Big Star and Alex is a big, is, is a part of the replacements story. Um, you know, I don't know that, that Paul, how consciously he was aware of that. I think by the time he wrote Alex Chilton, you know, uh, he, he was aware of it. I mean, I, I say in the book, you know, he wrote the song Children's by the Million Screen for Alex Chilton. You know, it's like that is that's myth making, but it's also a kind of hopeful projection on Paul's part. You know, in a world where people scream for Alex Chilton, they might scream for the replacements, too. But of course, none of that ever really happened, you know, in their lifetimes. Now, of course, both bands are, you know, venerated, well regarded. You know, all three big star records are in the 500 greatest records of all time Rolling Stone right. list. And so, you know, it's just not every not all careers uh a band career is kind of operate operate at the same pace. Some some bands it takes you know five years, ten years. Some bands it takes twenty or thirty years before they sort of get their get their due. Right. Well, let's get into it now that you've mentioned the Rolling Stone released their new 500 albums list. 
And in the original list, in the 2003 and 2012, they had both Let It Be and Tim. Tim, right, there. yeah. And Tim ahead of Let It Be. However, right. in the new list, uh, and I, I don't think I'm wrong about this, but I think it's, it's only Let, Let It, it be. be. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that too, yeah. And I thought that was, I mean, of course, I'm not offended. That is, that's my pick for this podcast. So let's, <laughs> let's get into Let It Be. This, this makes me happy. I'm glad that it, it overshadowed <laughs> Tim a little bit there. I, I think that's right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, personally, I think this is, this is their best album. Uh, when I think of the replacements, you know, these are the songs I think about. This is the album cover I think about. Sure. Um, you know, so to me, th- this is pretty much the, the ultimate, if someone says, who are the replacements, this is the record I hand them, right? That's a, that's a fair, yeah, sure. Uh, are, you, are you asking me if I think that's, well, I'll tell you this. I think, I mean, certainly let it be for a lot of reasons. I mean, the cover in no small part, I mean, that's a cover that has become iconic, been, you know, and that house is still there and it's been parodied and you've seen it. I've seen Archie's Comics did a, Archie's Comics yeah. Let It Be kind of cover. And you've seen that show, uh, uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. They did some magazine cover where they ate that. I mean, it's such a quintessential thing. So I think that sort of plays a lot into it. It was released in 84, which was such a great and important year for music in general, but certainly independent music and, and independent music out of Minneapolis when you think about Who's Do and Prince and all the stuff that sort of came out. So there's that. I do think it has you know, some definitely some kind of classic, you know, some of the kind of key songs in the replacements catalog talk about, I will dare you talk about I unsatisfied uh, answering machine. You know, it's got, you know, a, a whole range of, uh, you know, androgynous now, which has become kind of an anthem that's been covered by, you know, the likes of Miley Cyrus and Joe Jett and, and all that kind of stuff. So yes, right. I mean, I, I don't, I, and I think it is the first album I think, you know, the first two, you know, there's some people, they, you know, you get some people that don't like the replacements after the first two records. And then you get some people that only like the sort of middle period, or you get some people that are, you know, kind of contrarians and they like the last two records. So I, you know, you could get arguments on all sides, but I would say certainly, and then there's obviously the cheeky title that they're making fun of the Beatles or poking fun at that. I mean, it has all the kind of elements as far as a package. Um, And I do think probably it's certainly the, Yes. So I think for that reason, I think it's, that's the one that, that stayed on the list on, on Rolling Stones thing. I think you could make an equal argument for Tim in that it has probably the most important songs in Westenberg's catalog uh, in the sense of it's got Bastards of Young, it's got mm-hmm. Little Mascara, Left of the Dial, Here Comes a Regular, uh, Swing and Party, all those kinds of things. It probably has a couple duff moments um, of songs that were kind of put on there really for as exercises for Bob to sort of, you know, shine on a uh, dose of thunder and lay it down clown. Now I always maintain that if they had included the original version of can't hardly wait uh, on Tim and they had also re-recorded or done a version of nowhere is my home and replaced right. those two songs uh, with a dose of thunder and lay down clown. Then I think you have to say maybe that's not only one of the best records uh, the best replacements record, one of the best records of all time, but that didn't happen. So I would think that you could have the argument that certainly let it be from the, certainly from the twin tone period uh, is, you know, the definitive replacements record. And clearly it's very understandable why that would be, you know, somebody's choice for best album. And I think there's something to be said to that is the, their like last go at, you know, at the independent label and they just kind of knock it out the park and it's good timing. 
And if you're looking at the 80s, um, you know, uh, R.E.M.'s coming off of Murmur in 83, which I think Rolling Stone called the album of the year. And then 84, they had Reckoning, which didn't do as well. And looking back, you see Let It Be. If you're playing into that rivalry narrative, right. it kind of is it's definitely the moment where they take well, over it, from there. Yeah, I mean, it really was for a period. People kind of forget that. I mean, R.E.M. always had more sales, but people kind of forget that 84, 85, uh, uh, you know, R.E.M. were, you know, the, it was the Rolling Stones that were the hot band in Rolling Stones' hot first hot issue, you know, in 1986. Yeah. It was them that was on SNL. Obviously, R.E.M. was building something in a different way that ended up, you know, sort of uh, surpassing the replacement certainly soon mm-hmm. after that. But, um, yeah, and, you know, 84, they, they were on the cover of The Village Voice. They were really kind of breaking nationally. They had only really started touring nationally a year and a half before that. So they didn't go out and start touring nationally until like the spring of 83. So they tour all Hootenanny and into that and then tour through 84, still on Hootenanny, but they're starting to play some of the Let It Be songs. And then when Let It Be comes out in September, then they go on this, um, you know, big tours that end with the Village Voice cover story and them getting signed in New York by Sire and Warner Brothers. So it's certainly the, and it's all wrapped up in that too. That is the record that really broke them into the next level of the business and people's consciousness for sure. And so, and then they, they do Tim with Tommy Ramone. Yep. Right. Yep. And uh, so is Tim for you, is that where you would say that's the one? Man, it's hard for me to, it's like picking my favorite child. You know, I have, I have of kind of, contrarian impulses i mean there's part of me that thinks you know the first album is kind of a perfect album in its own way sorry Ma, i forgot to take out the trash um to me my personal like my two personal favorite records before i ever started writing the book were hoot nanny and tim tim because that was the one i i still have the cassette you know that i used to drive around in my car in high school with uh and i again i think those songs are just so powerful I liked Hootenanny a lot because I'm a fan of transitional records, you know, where a band is kind of finding itself, but it hasn't yeah. quite coalesced in this thing. And, and you know, Hootenanny is the, I always say, it's the first album that sounds like The Replacements. You know, as much as I love the first record and, and as great as I think some of the stuff on, on Stink is, you know, Hootenanny is the departure point for them where they decided we can do anything. We don't want to be a punk band. We don't want to be a hardcore band. We, don't even, we want to be just The Replacements. And that's why there's such a grab bag of styles and experiments and weird things on that. And I think that opened the floodgates and opened the doors. And also there was some stuff going on internally in the band that allowed for what you hear on Let It Be. Um, mm. So I don't know. It's hard for me to kind of separate them on a personal level. Oh boy, I, I still listen to Hootenanny and kind of derive a lot of pleasure out of that. And Tim is obviously kind of has so many iconic songs and great songs on it. Let It Be, it goes without saying that that's, you know, a, a huge record. Um, but I would also argue that probably the record that I think you can make a case for in a different way as being the best replacements record. I don't say it's always the best, but I say it is the most complete in the sense. Uh, and that's pleased to meet me. It's the only album that they cut as a three piece. Uh, it's the first album they cut it outside of Minnesota and really had a, a, the flavor and I think impact of the environment they were in, which was Memphis. Uh, and they had probably their best producer, certainly their, the, the, the sort of canniest producer they work with Jim Dickinson. 
And he was, because they were recording as a three-piece, they had just fired Bob. He was able to bring a lot of stuff to that record in terms of outside musicians, horn players, atmosphere, and the way he was working technically, which I talk a lot about in the Please Meet Me Deluxe box, not the liner notes. It's a whole different kind of replacements record. And it wasn't really... They, they kind of kept going in that direction to a certain extent on, on, on Don't Tell a Soul, but there were other factors mitigating that. Whereas this was like the replacements being kind of um, expanded and exploring, but still incredibly contained and still forced to make a really powerful record. Um, I, I, again, we can, I mean, I don't know if I don't want to go running off on Please to Meet Me because I'm sure Rob has, has his thoughts on that, but it, it is. I think there's a way you can argue that like when you go back and obviously I had to go back and listen to a lot of stuff on that uh, to work on the deluxe, that it, 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 it really is a, it's a unique and different sounding replacements record from a technical perspective, from a, from a physical dynamics perspective, there's three people, you know, in the band instead of four, which really does change everything. And then you've got the whole sort of Memphis art Dickinson sort of aspect and element into it. Uh, so it's not like, you know, it's not like a, a, a record the way Let It Be is a record or the way that Tim's a replacements record with Bob and with this kind of structure in Minneapolis. Uh, it's a it's a whole different thing. But I think at the end of the day, if you break it down track for track, it has some of that same variety that Let It Be has, you know, and maybe even more variety when you look at it, something like Nightclub Jitters or something like Skyway or something like the, that version of Can't Hardly Wait with the Horns and the Strings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then there's a lot of the replacements humor in the same way. I, I actually think those two records are very similar, Let It Be and um, and Please to Meet Me. In, in, a w- in the same way that I look at Hootenanny and uh, the and Don't Tell a Soul, or at least the version of Don't Tell a Soul that we put out a couple of years ago on Dead Man's yes. Pop, as those are both transitional records. Hootenanny is a transition into the sort of, you know, the replacements forming into a tra- transitioning and then forming into the kind of the classic replacements. And then Don't Tell a Soul is the replacements kind of transitioning out of what they were and into, you know, the band that starts to sort of splinter and break up. So it's, so I think these three records in the middle, Let It Be Tim and Please to Meet Me, really are kind of the quintessential ones, even though they're with different lineups and, yeah. and different things. And so, uh, so it's interesting. So I think it's kind of one of those things you could kind of, I mean, I'd be interested to know what Rob's sort of argument is for Please to Meet Me. So I'll, I'll let you talk. But, but yeah, I, mean, I definitely think, you know, you could make a case for any of those three records, really. All right, Rob, let's, let's hear that case for, for Please to Meet Me. Yeah, so, so you know, one of the things you... you really wrote in your in, in your kind of accompanying material that goes with the deluxe edition and I, and I couldn't agree more it is I mean it's their only album as a trio and yet in terms of number of musicians it is overwhelmingly the largest number of musicians on any replacements album yeah um, so for me I, I struggle with that because I go is this a band that is in many ways, kind of reeling from the loss of having to fire Bob, uh, of, you know, essentially trying to figure out who they are now with, exactly. without this fourth person. And in that moment, does being in Memphis, being an ardent, does the phenomenal production work? I, I think I think Jim Dickinson's production on "Please to Meet Me" is probably the the most compelling production that goes into any replacements album it, it may be the heaviest hand of any producer 
on on their work but 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 I mean, you see the signature of jim dickinson all over that album but but i think he he aids and abets in what is the replacement sensibility he doesn't detract or he doesn't it's not so much his fingerprints are on it he's boosting them up you know what i mean yeah. he's sort of because they were they were like a three you know as paul Chuck, they were like a three-legged chair a three-legged dog they need you know coming into memphis into those sessions they needed something to kind of bolster them and balance them and jim and 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 the engineers and memphis and arden that was that was what the the, the studio and that was that that environment did it kind of made them whole uh for that record but also it allowed them i think the 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 freedom creatively to explore some things that wouldn't have happened if Bob was still in the band. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. sort of a catch-22. You're missing Bob, but it's also opening up doors. Uh, and also the what 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 Jim and the Arden folks are injecting is opening up the kind of uh, palette and colors that that are on that record. So you know, it's 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 one of those things where, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a different record, and it might even be kind of singular in the Replacements catalog. But it's still very much a Replacements record. You know, it's got mm-hmm. all the you know, because Paul is Paul's the writer primarily, and they were still kind of working so- on songs at that point together as a group. And so I think the things that are good and unique about that record are really is just kind of the the drive of it rhythmically. Again, when you cut a record with a three-piece, it's going to have a different feel. And then I think, um, you know, also then there's the kind of post-production stuff that, that yeah. Jim did. And sort it is of the best he, mixed album of any Replacements album. Yeah, early sampling process early pro tools kind of thing years before pro tools where he could fly in tracks and takes and things like that a lot easier with this Fairlight sampler and so he had the luxury of kind of making records in 1986 87 the way they are now while still having the sort of live dynamic you know devil may care kind of replacements aesthetic you know guiding the thing but there's also these little very artistic touches and Dickinson was you know, he was a guy of the moment. He came from the Sam Phillips Sun Records school of production, and that was his guru. But he also was somebody who, you know, embraced new technologies. You know, as a guy who embraced new technologies, but threw away the owner's manual. So it's, it's this kind of weird <laughs> mish of, you know, it's a digital record. It's a, made on a Mitsubishi 32-track digital board. You know, it's the cutting edge, which you would never think of the replacements. And it does have a weird sound, but it's like a digital sound, but it's not a high-end digit it doesn't sound like peter gabriel's so they gave these kind of this mad scientist this new technology and they brought in the most kind of primitive loudest weirdest loosest band and then they threw it all into this mix and so i think that's why that record has a kind of uh as dickinson said he said i make a high fidelity recording of a low fidelity uh, of, of you know music and so that's what kind of that record is today. um yeah but i think it's it, it's it's got a lot it's just got everything in that in the same way that let it be does it's got funny songs it's got experimental songs it's got um you know jim always said it doesn't have anthems but it's got an amount to me alex Shilton is an anthem uh it's got rebellious songs it's got sensitive songs it's got everything you know in the same way that let it be does so there's a scope to those two records that i think is similar and it's just probably a matter of taste which one you kind of prefer and and when and there's uh, obviously uh, the taste taste plays a huge role into it but it it is one of those things and again uh, so uh, I came to the replacements as a 17 year old through the 1998 film Can't Hardly Wait. Okay, sure. And so the sound the soundtrack of that film, of course, has Can't Hardly Wait in it. The the Please to Meet Me take of of or, Can't Hardly sure, Wait, yeah. and that was my entrance in. So in in some ways, similar to you, Please to Meet Me was my first replacements album, and and I think it is if you were. Uh, 
in a weird way, probably because I don't know, maybe now it's 20 years later for me and probably for you too. Like maybe that record sounds different and maybe let it be sounds more timeless. But it, when I was listening to that, I'm glad I found pleased to meet me, you know, when I did an 88 or whatever, or if you found it in 98, I think it's somehow an easier entry point for the novice fan yeah. than let it be would be i think let it be still is kind of an indie record and if your eye if your ears aren't used to kind of indie production or indie dynamics no but, I, but I, I think that plays a huge role <laughs> in it because it's th this idea of of in some ways accessibility that that one of one of those questions as you start thinking about what makes a a great album does you know you have this question of accessibility is does does a great album that doesn't have a lot of entry points for people kind of stand on to stand on its own. And it's one of the things that I love about Please to Meet Me is it is there's so many handles in that album. So whatever kind of wherever genre you're coming from, right. again, so well produced. So, so, you know, it, it for me feels like kind of this taking all of that energy that is the replacements and funneling it in, in kind of the, the best ways. Listening to Please to Meet Me, it's hard for me to imagine in 1987, 1988, I, I can't believe, can't hardly wait, Alex Chilton. Um, I mean, IOU, never mind. There are songs on Please to Meet Me, and I go, how was this not a, a major radio hit? How was this not a Billboard top 20 song? And it, was it just one of those things that because of where they were at that point in their career, they had already kind of so been defined as being kind of this alternative yeah they had they were in the alternative ghetto so to speak a little bit and they weren't able to break out but also that record i think as big as it sounded and as it sounds it was a different kind of big than bon jovi or mm. john cougar mellencamp or you know and it, it, the radio was or document or document even yeah, yeah. it was a, it, it's it's you know, Jim Dickinson, even though he's a legend, he wasn't a hit maker. He wasn't a pop hit maker. He wasn't a radio chart hit maker. And they tried. In fact, you know, they had Jimmy Iovine remix Can't Hardly Wait, which is on that version is on yeah. the box at Thinking, although his version is just it doesn't really do much to it. But obviously the next record they produced with Matt Wallace, who was an indie producer, and then they handed off the mix to uh, Crystal Lord Algae. So they were kind of inching towards you know, handing it off to a big pro mixer, which is ultimately what Nirvana did. They had, you know, uh, uh, Butch Vig produced it and Andy Wallace mixed it, you know, who was a who was a big radio successful mixer. So if it sounds like that to us today, but if you go back to 87 and, and look and see what was on the charts that year, uh, or even on the rock charts, you know, you put Please to Meet Me next to that, it still sounds very rough and somehow just not, you know, straight ahead enough for that kind of commercial success. Yeah. I was born in 1990, so I didn't, I was right. never I was born into a world without the replacements. Right. You know? right. So I found them through collecting records, and the first record I had from them was "Please to Meet Me." Right. So that still was my in entry. And then and then from there, my obsession became trying to find old replacements records. Right. You know. So and that that's part of the fun with the the mats for me. But I wanted to reset and go back to "Please to Meet Me" for the next ten minutes. Sure. Uh, Bob, you made the best case for Please to Meet Me that I heard you say elsewhere was that you get a lot of rock and roll history from Please to Meet Me. You look at the cover and it calls back to Elvis. They're in Memphis. They're at Ardent with Jim Dickinson, who did Big Stars third. And there's just a number of people who play on that record 
who all play a big part in music history and rock and roll history, particularly from Memphis. And I think that's a really good case, actually, for why this one might be the one. Do you want to say a little bit more about... Sure. I mean, well, however you look at that, I mean, uh, uh, you know, starting with Jim Dickinson, he's a guy who really his producing chops he was a student of sam phillips so you got that as the baseline they're working at ardent which is a studio that's historically aligned with stacks record they started as an offshoot of you know really doing a lot of stacks product during stacks's golden years in the late 60s and early 70s so you've got that you've got engineers and John Hampton and Joe Hardy, Joe Hardy, who ended up working on most of the ZZ Top records, Joe Hardy, who did a million things, you know, before and after as a mixer, you know, who engineered the cramps, he did all this stuff uh, and, and produced all the hits for the Gin Blossoms, uh, you know, and then you've got the players, you've got Ben Cauley, who plays uh, trumpet on Can't Hardly Wait, uh, who, you know, he was the only survivor of the Otis Redding plane crash, he was in the Barquets. You've got Andrew Love, who's one half of the Memphis Horns, who played on every, you know, Stax record and every big, you know, uh, thing that came out of Memphis. Um, you've got Steve Douglas, who Dickinson brought in, who was a member of the Wrecking Crew. He's on, he's a rebel. He's on all these, uh, you know, Beach Boys songs, Funky songs, Phil Spector stuff. Uh, and, you know, and, and, you know, Dickinson himself, he played with the Stones. He, pl he played with the Flaming Groovies. He, he certainly worked with Big Star. You've got all of that in this mix. And I think, again, it was the first time they were working outside of Minneapolis. I mean, they had worked with Tommy Ramone, but they'd worked in their kind of home base in, in Minneapolis. So this is like, you know, every aspect. And Alex is on the record. And, uh, you know, there's just, and, and, you know, even look at Jim's productions. Jim was a historian. I mean, he was going to be a history teacher before he was a producer. And so he brings a kind of sense of history to all his projects. And I think he he was, you know, at that time coming to Memphis as opposed to working in New York and L.A., people were in part coming from for the experience of Memphis and what that environment could, could sort of bring. And, you know, even just as they were recording, they would go see like, uh, you know, Fred Ford uh, at, at the Peabody Hotel, all these great jazz and blues musicians. It was just it was in the air, and even though Paul says, well, I was, you know, in a studio in a five by five room. And what atmosphere did I get? You do hear it on the record. And I think. But I think mostly it's Dickinson creating an environment of of openness and exploration and yet a certain kind of discipline to the rhythm tracks, to the mix that um, really is kind of, but it's just a fantastic story. You know, I mean, the reason they, part of the reason why they work with Dickinson is because Seymour Stein, who had Sire Records, who signed them, the one of the first records that Sire ever did was a live recording of the 1968 or 69 Memphis Country Blues Festival with Jim Dickinson organized. So like that relationship went back 20 years, you know, and, and it goes back to the history of Sire Records. And and I think really the where the replacements and rock and roll history, you know, you're talking about the Stones, you're talking about Big Star, you're talking about Otis Redding, Stax, Elvis, all this stuff where it meets is in this, is in Please to Meet Me. So that's a really kind of cool you know, aspect to this record. And I think even though it wasn't a conscious thing of like, we're going to go down to Memphis and make a Memphis record, um, you do get that. The version of Can't Hardly Wait that's on there, they had tried recording it four or five times, four or five different ways. And yet Paul came in, hung over, finished the song at the Holiday Inn in Memphis, came in, hung over, and they sort of did a Memphis-style reading. Chris is playing behind the beat like Al Jackson, Booker T and the MGs. There's a little more slack in the riff. And then Dickinson comes in with his production of the horns, which is a Memphis thing, but the horns and strings, which is a Dan Penn uh, box tops production, which is the band Alex was in. So yeah, it's right. this record is kind of strewn with Memphis history, rock and roll history, and I think that really kind of um, is another reason why maybe it's it has an element that Let It Be doesn't. Dare I say? So. 
Yeah. Well, we want to be mindful of your time. And Bob, we can't thank you enough for being with us. Uh, it's been such a treat for us to get to hear from you. We love your writing. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be uh, encouraging our listeners to go check out your book, this incredible history of the replacements. And so as our final question to you, we want to yes. ask you to settle the debate. <laughs> for you, the, the, the greater replacements album, Let It Be or Please to Meet Me. I'm going to say on a, on a musical level, because uh, as I mentioned, I think those two records, they have a lot of the same qualities. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a dead heat. But I think ultimately the, the intangibles, the era in which it was released in, the year it came out, the sort of indie romance, the iconic cover, the influence and impact it had in its time and subsequently... I think just barely I'm going to have to tip the favor, the scales in favor of let it be in terms of if you're asking me legit, like which which one should be on there, I'll say let it be. But I'll, I'll, I'll qualify that by saying in a weird way, I think, and especially after going through the process of working on this deluxe, please to meet me that it's, it's, I still, my personal preference is that it's, 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 it's pleased to meet me. But I think if you're going to have to break it down into a kind of objective, I think you'll have to say, you have to say, let it be. Sorry, Rob. (laughs) Bob, I thank you so much. And for everyone listening, get a hold of this box set. Uh, It's incredibly packaged by Rhino. They do such a great job. The dead man's pop box is also incredible. Uh, A lot of people kind of push off. Don't tell a soul. Uh, Bob, I thought for a second when you were going to say the most complete replacements album, I thought you were going to say "Don't Tell a Soul." Well, uh, I because was, I've I've become uh, this, someone I, I, the who box, really loves the album. It's your fault. Yeah, it's this the and box that I think I think the version. I, you know, that's a, that's a debate for another time. Why well, don't we have to be the most underrated records? And I think the version that we we put out on the "Don't, don't Tell a Soul" box set, the "Don't yes. Tell a Soul" Redux with Matt Wallace's mix, I think that and it, it, and I you know it, hopefully it's changed people's opinions of that record, and I hate. Hope in time, maybe in another five years, we'll be talking about that. Maybe sneaking on the on, on the uh, from the underrated list to the best, uh, you know, one of the best replacements records. So. I'd love to see it. I'd love to yeah. see it. And I also want to shout out. Uh, you did you didn't notice, and you produced also the for sale live at Maxwell's. Yeah, the, the yeah those reissues uh, for sale live at Maxwell's eighty six, uh, the Dead Man's Pop, and of course the new um, uh, don't uh, rather please to meet me at deluxe and, uh, and, you know, obviously trouble boys, the book, all that stuff. You can find info about that on, uh, at replacementsbook.com or rhino.com. So. Excellent, right excellent. Bob, thanks Thank so you, much. You're welcome. You're welcome back anytime. You Appreciate it. Thanks for having- big star. Or whatever. <laughs> well, thanks for having me and, and yeah, good luck. I hope that I hope you guys, you know, just keep it friendly as you debate these things and, and you go on. <laughs> Uh, what a, what an incredible treat. We want to thank Bob Mayer for being with us. Go check out the Troubled Boys, replacementsbook.com, rhino.com, any of the packaging he's done. Essentially, if you're a Replacements fan um, and you've been picking up any of these uh, re-releases or if you're interested in a book about the Replacements, we can't recommend uh, Bob Mayer's stuff enough. And he was such a, a treat to have on the pod even though I, I was convinced as we were talking about Please to Meet Me, I was like, man, Bob, he is with me. He gets it. He understands all the things that I love about this album. Um, and yet he's still going, you got to tilt it in the favor of... He almost convinced me in the end for Please to Meet Me. He's like, you know, 
Otis Redding, you know, the, the, uh, the only survivor of the Otis Redding crash. I was like, yeah, you know what? He's right. And then he went back to let it be. And then I, I couldn't be happier. So the debate has been settled. He is. So, well, well hold on. So we asked oh. him, we asked him what his favorite is. After listening to Bob speak, after our, after our conversation with Bob Mayer, biographer and historian of The Replacements, has he changed your mind? Because he, he clearly thinks there is a greatest album. Mm-hmm. But, but, but instead of looking at as him settling the debate between us, did he effectively change your mind to make you a believer like me that Pleased to Meet Me is the best <laughs> Replacements album? No. Um, and I'll, I mean, Pleased to Meet like I said, you know, it, it was my first replacement. It was, it's the first replacements record I fell in love with. So, I mean, this is a special album to me. Um, I love Please to Me. I love the the deluxe, I, the rough mix. Is I'm I'm so uh, grateful for what he's put together because not only did he do the line notes, he produced this box set. So, uh, providing the the great rough mix for it, it is it's the pleasure of like getting to hear it again for the first time, and, I, and I'm so grateful for that. And I do love this album. Um, you know what, but there's, there's another point where I'm going to argue for a Jim Dickinson album and that that's going to be big stars third. And, you know, so I, there's that. And also, um, what happened with the deluxe box set is that it fixed a couple of my issues with the album. So there, there's a run there with uh shooting dirty pool and red, red wine that I, I can't get into i can't love it like i do side one or, yeah. and, and, or the end of side two and agreeably and agreeably those are the worst two songs on the album the, right. the shooting dirty pool and redwood wine worst worst two songs yeah. on right. on a great album right and, and not not uh, two bad songs uh, just like in that run of songs i mean they're i mean everything else is you know they're they're tens you know so to get to those uh, they can, and where they are in the album too uh, disrupts the flow a little bit for me. But what this, like I was saying, with this deluxe edition, you hear things like uh, "Kick It In" and uh, "Birthday Girl" or "Birthday Gal," and it's like, well, you know, those side by side with Valentine and uh, Never Mind, that's a better album. You know, like yeah. he was saying, you know, the, the the new Matt Wallace mix for "Don't Tell a Soul," which is a different mix and sequenced differently. Um, you do the same thing with uh, Please to Meet Me. You get those two songs in there. I think you already have a. And you, you're more. I'm more willing to to tip it again to Please to Me, but let it be. There's a timeless quality for what it means for you know 19, 1984 uh, independent music in 1984. Uh, and, and I'm a big fan of an album cover. I'm a big fan of a good album cover, and that one is one of the all time best album covers. One of the great all-time opening tracks with mm-hmm. I Will Dare uh, featuring uh, Peter Buck from R.E.M., which we mentioned the rivalry with R.E.M. Uh, for that entire talk, but it's worth saying that Peter Buck actually plays on that record. You get the great opening track, Androgynous. I mean, this is a song that, uh, which Bob alluded to earlier, is is more anthemic now than it was back then. You know, so it's, it's, um, it's reinventing itself without having to do any effort you know the, the the world is changing to meet it where it was in 1984 it doesn't need a remix it doesn't need the deluxe edition uh but you know people keep meeting it where it's at so the other way around in light of in light of where we are 
Uh-huh. We've we've had we've had an illustrious guest on who's joined you in the belief that let it be is the the great or the greatest of the replacements album. So now we're faced with the tough question and the question that is, is central to what we're doing here as a podcast, which is this: mm-hmm. is let it be an all-time great album? Or, or, or let me ask a different way. If the goal of this season is to come up with 25, the first 25, and again, not in order, not saying the best 25, but just the first 25, do you rightfully place Let It Be among the first 25 great albums? Okay. I got two things. <laughs> um, what, I mean, what you have to do at this point is make the case... You're, at this point, you're making the case for the band also. And for a lot of our listeners who don't, you know, probably don't know the replacements, uh, you know, why this weird, you know, kind, kind of obscure punk rock band. They're, they're not the Clash, they're not the Ramones, they're not Sex Pistols, right? Why these guys? Well, you know, and, and this, this does come down to taste and it comes down to what interests me in the era before and after the replacements, but uh, for me, the way I, I, I place them in rock and roll history is I see three bands that are important to me in terms of rock and roll music in America, right? Uh, the first being Big Star, who we mentioned a lot, and then their uh, you know, predecessors, who I call The Replacements, and then who comes after them is Wilco, right? And these three, to me, I, I see together as a group uh, as a pretty great story about the history of rock and roll music in America. So for me, it's important to see these three in the top 100. Now, let it be, for me, top 100 greatest album because of how it influences people like Wilco and because you can see the influences of people like Big Star. Now, does it belong in the top 25? That's tough. Because then you have to go back to well, they are a punk rock band. Is this, and you know, is this a top five punk rock album of all time? Maybe. Is it top three? I don't know. And if so, do those top three belong in the top twenty-five before you know what I would call maybe number five? So I, I don't know that it belongs in the twenty-five. But that being said, I don't think Please to Meet Me does either. Um, <laughs> of course. Uh, but so yeah, so I. I I can't say that it belongs... It's in my personal top 25, no doubt. But also, as I said in the first episode, the rare podcast where we invite the people to be angry at us and tell us, you forgot one, right? That, that is also kind of the nature, right? So we, we need the help of other people, right? To the, and, I mean, we, <laughs> the arrogance that the two of us are just like, we're going to decide the top 100, right? We, we know, mm-hmm. we know. Right, that this is this is a silly thing. That's the that's the nature of the podcast. So we want yeah. to hear from people. And two two white we, guys from Florida who who maybe value dad right. rock way too way too highly are going to you know give right. the final judgment on the great albums of all time. Yeah, yeah, we solved the, the audacity. Right. So we want to hear from people, and uh, we want to hear. Keep the let it be, please to meet me debate going. You know. I mean, you've heard it from me personally and um, the replacement's greatest record keeper and <laughs> historian, uh, 
you know, so it's just, you know, us two against against Rob. So if he wants to come in and help Rob out. We'd we'd love to hear from you. So so we're concluding this episode. I want to go ahead and say thank you again to Bob Mayer for being with us. Um Micaiah won this round. Uh yes. we're we're officially saying the replacements let it be is is among our first twenty five, our season one first twenty five, putting together the greatest albums of all time. Let it be by the replacements has made our first 25. Thanks to Micaiah and Bob Mayer. Uh, if you're with me and you still contend that please to meet me is the best replacements album. Uh, we'd love you to reach out to us. You can reach us out on our website, uh, which is youforgotone.com. You can find us on Instagram uh, at you forgot one on Twitter. You forgot one pod. If you're on anchor, you can leave us voicemails at anchor.fm slash you forgot one and uh, plenty of ways to keep in touch with us. Mm-hmm.